If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, we are in a day and age where we are talking a lot and thinking a lot about the great resignation, the quiet resignation, and of course, burnout. And that is why today we are going to have Jennifer Moss, the author of The Burnout Epidemic, on the podcast to really speak with us about all things burnout and hopefully help us avoid it for ourselves as well as for the teams we lead. And so let me just start by asking you, our listeners, have you ever taken a Friday off work, then opened your laptop on Saturday and Sunday to play catch up? I know that I certainly have. And Does your nonprofit have a happiness and engagement strategy for its team members? I know the vast majority of places that I've worked and I've led have not had that. And this is why we're having Jennifer on the podcast today. She is an international journalist, speaker, and author of books and articles. And you can see her articles at SHRM, which is the Society of Human Resource Management, as well as HBR and elsewhere. She in her consulting work, works with household brands like Habitat for Humanity and TD Bank. And in addition to the book, The Burnout Epidemic, also wrote the book, Unlocking Happiness at Work. So she is truly the perfect person for us to be speaking with at this time. Hey, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to be here, Dolph. This is great. Well, I have to share with you that when I was reading your book, I was surprised to see that you burned out while writing the book on burnout. Yeah, I, I, I always put hashtag irony around that one because, uh, I mean, I was writing the book pre-pandemic and uh, and been writing about burnout for a long time and researching it um, before the crisis hit. And, uh, and then I'm in the throes of interviewing people and talking to people and even just having to write a book now all of a sudden with three kids at home trying to you know provide them some semblance of normalcy online learning which i was terrible at so it was a lesson in humility and you know and then my husband's home too we had a made a ridiculous mistake of uh, adopting a pandemic puppy of which yes i'm grateful for now so there was just a lot of you know commotion it felt 
really difficult to focus and stay um, and stay on, on the job. And writing requires a lot of concentrated focus. And I, I was deep in research too. I mean, this is a book that has a, a lot of research that's attached to it. I think at the end, we had 240 citations of research, which meant I probably read a thousand or more papers to be able to come up with that final product. So needless to say, I think like most people inside this pandemic, we were pretty tired and exhausted and strained. And I, of course, have to reflect that I know a lot of our friends who are listening had that same experience where they're at home, they've got children, they're doing online learning. So I know a lot of people are, are smiling going, oh, thank goodness, this is not someone who says, I do this all perfectly, and I will tell you exactly how to do this without burning out. I think, and and I've mentioned this, that the book has even more richness in that I really did understand it. And I have gone as a startup founder, I went through kind of entrepreneurial burnout as well, which I felt deeply, you know, as we moved from startup to stay up. So I feel like it adds a richness to say, it doesn't matter how well you know a topic, you still are not impervious to burnout. And what did you learn as a result of your own burnout experience? Well, I mean, I just had so much empathy for everyone that was in my position, but then I had even deeper empathy for those people that were on the front line, those people, you know, especially, and I write in the book uh, that certain personalities and, and industries specifically at risk, sectors at risk are nonprofits. I mean, people that were remaining in the front line, the people that were dealing with a lack of certainty about the illness, they didn't know what PPE was going to be coming at them. And, you know, and just so much of the the impact on people that are trying to still make impact on their communities who are now experiencing 10 times the stress that they were experiencing before the pandemic. So I felt sorry for myself. Yes. A few times a day, maybe, but, but I had, I just felt so much empathy for all those other people that are out there. And it made me really want to tackle this issue because I, you know, all the interviews just made it like I, I couldn't even stop writing the book. There was a point where my editor said, okay, we can't add any more new data. I mean, because we can't add any more words. I mean, you're just, you have to have a word lock at some point, but there was always some new thing happening. I mean, I haven't even been able to write up in the book. I didn't even capture quiet quitting or the great resignation. So, so all fodder for the next book, I guess. And one of the things I'm I'm really struck by and was struck by in your book, and I want to ask this from the perspective of someone who's gone through burnout, you say that oftentimes when we're experiencing burnout, people will, with very good intentions will counsel us and say, you should take a digital break. You should take a vacation. You should go to yoga class. And you've also pointed out that that doesn't fix burnout. Why is that? I have approached the way that we think about burnout is that Self-care, even though it's extremely important and we should have it still as part of our our lives, it it does uh, create a buffer to to burnout, but it is not the only tool that's going to solve for it. And for a long time, that has been the hammer that we've been pounding is here, you know, listen to rain for 15 seconds and that's going to cure systemic discrimination, which is a root cause of burnout. So, you know, we haven't understand that the root causes of burnout are institutional, they're societal, they're they're bigger than 
our ability to solve them alone. And so we need to stop, you know, thinking that if we give ice cream to people that need water, that we're going to solve these big problems. Again, much further upstream solutions and, and then still being able to give people time. That's the thing. If you have unmanageable workloads, people don't have time to do yoga. People don't have time to engage in those sort of self-care best practices. So we're just tackling it at the wrong end uh, of the problem. And so let's talk about the right end of the problem. And you mentioned systemic racism and discrimination as one of the roots of burnout. Yes. So there's six root causes of burnout. Overwork predominantly is the big one. I mean, we've, we know that unmanageable workloads, but lack of agency. So feeling like there's a lack of autonomy. We feel that, um, that sense of a, a lot of that lack of agency, especially if you're in nonprofits where you just have so much climate of shift and change, politics can change things, environment can change things. I mean, you're just constantly having to adjust and that can make you feel like you don't have any control. Um, you know, you see that in lack of pay, you know, for efforts in nonprofits, you also experience this this need to have impact and it going towards the the greater cause but sometimes it means maybe not resourcing the right talent that you want to be able to or being able to live with less resources which is exhausting so that's a problem and then we're also seeing that in lack of community so loneliness and isolation and then the lack of fairness piece is that discriminatory behavior and those most vulnerable are are at risk women disproportionately were at risk and the final root cause of burnout is mismatched values and skills so just feeling like, hey, I love what I do, but I'm not connected to the mission anymore. And for mission-driven people, if you start feeling like you're less effective and you're not making an impact, that is hard on your sense of confidence and self-worth and value. And when that happens, I mean, that's a really big root cause of burnout within this sector particularly. And based on both your expertise with this book and your last book, I feel pretty confident that organizational leaders have come to you before and said, hey, how do we move the needle on burnout? What do we do? You know, it's interesting because at first I was a happiness expert and now I'm an unhappiness expert. But I think a big part of that uh, evolution is just understanding where to tackle it, which part of the stream that we should be instead of, you know, letting people fall in, in the first place, we're going to save them from that. And so, you know, the evolution and the goal has taken me to really helping leaders understand that for a long time, we have been looking at happiness, which has led, because we haven't attacked burnout, we've been making it feel like toxic positivity, which is not receptive for a lot of people right now. We're not receiving that because we feel like, well, how come I have to be more resilient? You know, how come it's on me to practice gratitude? Uh, how come, uh, you know, you're telling me that I need to be hopeful or practice, you know, kind of this, this hope theory. And yet, when I am extremely exhausted and cynical and nothing's changing, it's hard to continue to feel hope. So it's understanding that the psychological fitness piece is really important. Happiness is important. And I tell that to leaders, but we want to make sure that we're dealing with mental health and we're attacking the problem with people understanding that it is these upstream interventions like teletherapy and access to telehealth and access to, you know, all the things that we, you know, need to be focusing on that are upstream more 
uh, people trained in mental health first aid, more people that are engaged in being able to be mental health conduits instead of mental health professionals. We we need to have those professionals in the organizations and EAPs that direct people to that. But our job as managers or leaders of organizations, it's really hard for us to be professionals. So we need to communicate to everyone. We are not people that you come to, you know, if you're dealing with something and something that I can't handle, but I can direct you, you come to me to tell me that you are in crisis, I will direct you to the person that can help you. And being very clear about how you can help and the best way you can help so that people can feel comfortable in meeting you there, you meet them where they're at, but give them off to the person that can better support them. And so you just answered my question, I was going to ask you, what is a mental health conduit? So that's what a mental health conduit is. Someone that knows what's in the EAP, someone that knows what's locally. I mean, why, you know, why wouldn't we expect, you know, in our community that we have impact that there's not other groups that might have impact on our employees specifically to what they're dealing with? Maybe it is an LGBTQ plus issue. Maybe it is a feeling as a new immigrant, you don't have the supports you need. Maybe you are a single mother. I mean, there's lots of really great other community supports that we as leaders should be aware of and be able to then, you know, use those resources resources and advocate for those resources in our local communities. And so I think that's really important. And, and if we could maybe um, drill down on that a little bit. And so maybe you've got an employee that comes to you and they're having a crisis that in part is precipitated by too much work and also in part because of things that are happening at home or the outside world. How does the leader navigate that conversation? It's really important to recognize how much you have within your control to be able to support and and even just as individuals, what we have in our control to, to manage. I mean, leaders need to say, you know, when it comes to paid family leave globally, you know, within wherever we are in our, you know, country. There's different support systems in place that I have access to. I mean, that's just one example. I mean, looking at what you can control and saying, I can, you know, maybe look at your workload. Where can we support when it comes to workload? How do we reduce meeting fatigue? How do we reduce the amount of connection that we are forcing on people in the late nights and weekends and evenings? How do we control what we can, which is in my purview? How do I have simple meetings that just check in with people regularly to see in a non-work related conversation, you know, how are people feeling, you know, about their lives? What makes them happy? What motivates them? Also, what is stressing them out and how we as a team can make next week a bit easier. Quick wins, really simple to operationalize, not big overhauls. And then say, you know, societally, I would love to solve for these issues around discriminatory attitudes. I would love to be able to solve for, you know, the global pandemic that I can't solve for. But here's what I can control, and I'm going to listen, I'm going to ask you what you need, and then I'm going to action that. And you build trust over frequency and consistency, and that actually makes you feel like, and everyone feels like we're working towards a goal, and you can kind of feel the wins, and you build momentum around that. But it's important to know it takes a long time that it is just a mindset shift. You have to look at this as this is the lifestyle of our organization. This is not a diet, a one-year program around happiness, and it's a value that we add, that we abandon. So for me, I think that begs the question, if someone's the chief executive or the executive director of a nonprofit, they often feel like they don't have full control over that workload either because it's coming from funders, the board, others. So how does that leader work to 
better control the workload when they don't have full control over what's coming through the pipeline? That's a big part that I've seen this last year, this middle manager crush or, you know, they've just been really crushed. And and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they are in this, they are in the sandwich where they have their leaders saying this is what the expectation they have to report to them. And then they have the team that is burning out and they're trying to support them. And I think burnout is an ecosystem problem to solve because at the organization level, if they're not paying attention to this issue then it's impossible for the rest of the organization not to burn out. It has to be all the way up, down, sideways, bottom up, top down. All of Everyone has to be working towards this burnout prevention strategy. And that is adopting workload. Managers don't realize that there are ways to reduce inefficiencies, that they should be having their employees kind of spending like once a quarter just documenting for a couple of weeks what they're working on, what are the urgent needs that get people thrown off their priority needs. Maybe we adjust priority needs so that we can make sure urgent needs are adopted into what that day-to-day work looks like. You know, readjusting, being agile because things change. And what we tend to do is we just keep taking on more. Someone leaves especially with this mass attrition event that we had with the great resignation, people just sort of take on what's left. And then when there's a new hire, we don't necessarily distribute that workload appropriately. A lot of it is just inefficiencies with lack of communication. Every couple months have this opportunity to talk. Also, even through training, I mean, a lot of what happened in the pandemic is that we weren't technologically ready. We weren't resilient. And that change made people just kind of have to, you know, baptism by fire. They had to just learn different types of tools to work in that environment. And they've never really gone back to update the skills or to get better at it. Or, you know, it's just been like, I'm going to do this inefficiently forever instead of saying, okay, maybe I should, you know, improve the knowledge of this technology so that I can actually be more efficient. It's about tiny incremental tweaks that give you back bits and bits and pieces of your time. When it comes to meeting fatigue, we should have a culture where it's okay to decline meetings, where you can politely decline, say, I think I would make you know a great contributor and I appreciate that you're bringing me into this, but you know, is there a place where it's really valuable for me to be there? How about I come from 12.45 to one and bookend the meeting with my contributions instead of having to be there a full hour? And hosts can be really good about saying, hey, I need you in this agenda at this period of time. It's a tiny bit of front end work, but you could be giving people these incremental 15 minutes here, 30 minutes there, back in their workday. We're not just being very respectful of people's time. There's a lot of time theft going on, and we need to adjust that too. I think often what happens is, whether it's through incremental things we do or technology, we find ways to win back some time, but then we also find ways to fill that time in with more than can actually be done in the 15 minutes you win back. And the example I'll give is, gosh, 40 years ago, before everyone at work had a desktop computer at their desk or a laptop, if you wanted to send someone a message, you either had to pick up the phone and call them, or you literally had to sit at a typewriter, type out a message. If you did not have a secretary, proofread it, make corrections, type it out again, put it in an envelope with a stamp on it, and mail it, and wait five or 10 days for them to reply back to you. And now we live in this amazing time where, you know, we can send that letter in five minutes. And so theoretically, that should save me 55 minutes of time. But in reality, now I get 
150 emails a day, and so I lose three hours. So so help, help me understand how I win this losing battle of I find 15 minutes, but something else fills up 30 minutes of it. It's so accurate. I was just looking at the Microsoft Trends data, and I talk about this, um, which was wild, 252% increase in meetings, but we sent out 40.6 billion more emails in a time where we were working three hours more per day. So, I mean, it didn't slow anything down. We just sent more emails. We just had more meetings. And I, I think the thing here, and I think it's really important, and I had an interview too with, with Sarah Green Carmichael at Bloomberg, we talked about commutes, you know, the whole thing, all we did was just fill in the commute time, and, you know, with more work. So what we have to do is create these boundaries, it's now work life boundaries, and that doesn't mean quietly quitting. And that I, I abhor that term. It is about saying, okay, what are my expectations? I spent two and a half years facing my own mortality. You know, I've looked at some of the most like basic needs requirements of uh, my day being met. And that was all that I really cared about at a certain period of time. When we've gone through that, it changes the frame of reference, the lens. And so we talk about quiet quitters as these people that are just not going, you know, above and beyond. And, but that term is very nebulous. I think we need to start being very clear around what are the expectations of the job? What are the parameters of the job? And we need leaders to really buy into this and stop using above and beyond, figuring out, okay, what is a, a, a meaningful level of productivity? What do we need to hit certain goals? Maybe not think uh, about innovation or die or growth strategy has to be the most important strategy this year. Maybe it's sustainability of our workforce, because if you grow, I mean, I have an example of one company that hired 6,000 people that year, but they are also replacing 3,000 of those 6,000. So you have to imagine the cost, you know, of them growing and hiring is also meaning the loss of these 3,000 employees. So it is at a leadership kind of real strategic level that we need to look at what is attrition cost, what is hiring cost, you know, what are all these things that we have to think about, but we need to also understand that the, the workforce needs guidelines, they need rest. If we want to stop them from quietly quitting or resigning, we need to put boundaries on their time and managers can control that. They can say we have this right to disconnect at a certain time. And I, as a manager, am not going to email in the evenings with a little signature that says, just because I'm working at midnight doesn't mean you have to. I want those to never, ever, I never want to see that ever on anyone's email address. It's just all these invisible pressures. And we should really walk the talk. Managers and leaders need to take time off and not answer emails or join meetings on their vacations. They need to not communicate with you on their weekends and evenings. They have to create the model that they want to see in their employees or else it'll never change. And that's very hard for leaders to do, especially leaders of nonprofits. But it's it's really the only solution is actually doing the thing that you want to see change in your, your organization. I love the way you said that. I'm actually probably going to pull a clip of that and run it on our social media as well. You're right. It starts with us. If we manage people, it starts with us. And if we can't do it, then we should not be surprised if anyone on our team is unable to do it as well. Absolutely. I mean, 
we always talk about this when we look at even in our, you know, diversity inclusion, you know, strategies, we're looking at, well, we need to see representation. Well, we are the representation of preventing burnout. So, you know, if no one sees that, if they just see, a, you know, a person that's working 70 hours and they're 80 hours, they're not, you know, taking care of themselves, then why would they think that they should be doing the same? And so we're always looking at representation and understanding that works across all, you know, all strategies, all goals. We have to be engaged in it as leaders too. And what are effective strategies for us as leaders to model that behavior, but model it in a way that's productive? And so, for example, I assume the way to not do it is at 4.59 to shut off your computer and announce, well, I'm I'm leaving. I'll see you all tomorrow. Right. <laughs> it it really just has to be that you are managing your time differently in the day. The things where you need access to people, use that in the day while they're working to be able to have that type of communication. If you're someone that, you know, has pajama hours, we call them, which I say is, you know, anything after 55 hours a week is overwork, according to the WHO. So we we really should be sticking within the 40 hours or 30 32-hour work week is the ideal according to the four-day work week. But, you know, 40 hours is still a substantial amount of time at work. And we should be looking at, okay, how do we make sure that those things that maybe if we need to finish up, we can finish up without needing to engage another employee to do that, you know, and just spending time in your day to say, okay, I have to have these meetings, but then I also need to use my out of office. I keep saying, use my out of office for good all the time. You know, if you need two and a half, two hours to just be heads down because you need to finish a project, encourage your team and yourself to say, use an out of office, say, hey, I am you know, in an emergency, if you really need me, you can access me, but I'm in heads down right now. So I'm not taking emails or responding, but I will respond to you at say four or whatever. Um, and, and have times like, like teachers have times to answer emails to their parents, you know, have specific times where you are really able to be in zones, be in flow and uninterrupted time, because you'll actually be much more efficient at getting your work done than if you're stopping every two seconds to answer an email. That's not really productive. So figuring out how to create workflow that is much more focused on people and being respectful to people's time, and then also making sure that you get what you need to get done. And then the other things have to come after. And if they don't get done, think about this. Is it going to be a deathbed regret? And we need to start thinking about that. Is this going to be a deathbed regret if I don't get this thing done before I'm going to check out and be with my family? Missing dinner with my family will be a deathbed regret if that's something that we do all the time. But not answering that email will not be, I promise. So start thinking about the greater goal in life. And I think it gives us good checks and balances. That's incredible, Jennifer. I love the way you said that. And that's the perfect place for us to pivot. And move over to the off the map question. So I understand that you have been on the Global Happiness Council, which is disbanded after um, becoming fully successful in all of its work. And I say that jokingly, but tell me, what was the Global Happiness Council? Yeah, so I would love for the Global Happiness team to get back together, the band get back together, but COVID obviously played a role. Um, we used to meet in Dubai every year for this uh, government summit that was really 
really focused on, you know, having leading thinkers and people from all over the place. I mean, Will I Am was there, and also you had the Prime Minister, you know, of Canada and the U.S. President. I mean, you'd have everybody there from you know celebrities to senior um, politicians. And the reason why they were coming there is to think, okay, how do we actually make the world a healthier and happier and more sustainable place. It was really built on the UN's SDGs, their their goal of um, wellness and, and mental health being an important part of their goals. And so our team would get together and I was under Jan Emanuel Deneuve, who was an economist out of Oxford. And he's brilliant. He's been really involved specifically in the workplace happiness space for probably the last 20 years. I mean, worked under some of the the most recent Nobel Prize winner. Um, so got to have these really great conversations and, and thinking about it in a different way, thinking about it from the economist's way, thinking about it from the policy you know, way, thinking about it from just practicing inside of organizations, so the institutional and academic thinking. And, and so we produce this global happiness policy report every single year. And so I would bring my research in and talk about as a practitioner, you know, how can we make um, workplaces happy. And, you know, it was interesting because I spent a lot of time looking at the psychological fitness piece and looking at these seven traits that lead to the happiest, healthiest, highest performing teams. And it's hero gem, essentially hope, efficacy, resilience, optimism, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness. So these seven traits, this, it, it really builds psychological capital. And then also we tested this across the board. It improves math scores inside of classrooms and increases teacher engagement. It reduces malpractice suits. I mean, you look at this across the board and then you look at it in, you know, in, in a nonprofit impact is increased um, substantially twofold. And then you uh, look inside of these large knowledge, you know, centers and, uh, and tech and finance and those groups, they are looking at increase in sales by 32%. I mean, productivity rose to 40% if you just have this across the board. And here's the trick though. Here's the one important piece to this. And what I write about in the in the research is that it has to be that everyone is behaving with the same shared language. It does not work if we tell employees to be more hopeful and then not behave themselves. And we have real that's why I say that really great data to show the organizations that act this in the same way, share the same language, have the same commitment to the programming, have the same commitment to, you know, increasing this type of thinking inside the organization, then when you have empathetic leaders, when you have more optimistic leaders, when you have, you know, mindful leaders that can meet chaos with calm, then you have employees that are more hopeful, more uh, engaged, more mindful, more kind, more grateful. So it has to be that, again, same with burnout, it has to be an ecosystem, everyone sharing the language and the and the goals and the work and the actions. And then you see some pretty exciting things come out of it. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. And that is a great place for us to wrap up our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such, such a pleasure. Friends, let me tell you, it is so easy to find Jennifer. Just go to jennifer-moss.com. And while you are at her website, you can find out more about her books. You can learn more about her. And also make sure you check out some of her articles that are also linked at the website. And of course, 
if you want to think about ways that your organization can, frankly, support happiness and prevent burnout, make sure you get a copy of The Burnout Epidemic, which is available on Amazon. And listeners, you know, I always am grateful, and I always have this sense that I have friends out there when someone rates and reviews the podcast. So if you would please, make sure you rate and review the podcast if you've not already. And let me just share that if this episode touched you in a way and you thought, yeah, this is going to help make me stronger, this is going to help make my organization stronger, there's two other episodes you should download. The first is episode 179, Eight Proven Ways to Feel Happier at Work with Bia Bocalandro. And the second is episode 182, Life After Burnout with Bethany Planton and Trish Bachman. That, friends, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. I'm not an accountant nor a lawyer. Neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This should not be a surprise because I say it every week. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and yes, that means it should not be relied on for tax, legal, and accounting advice. Please, if that is what you need, find a licensed, qualified professional in your area and seek the guidance that you need.